0: Please turn in your copy of the scriptures to the book of 1 John. I'll be reading the whole chapter. It's not a long chapter, but it's a significant chapter that gives great encouragement to the people of God. It's probably helpful to remember that we just last week began a series preaching through the shorter catechism. I should maybe say that differently. We're preaching through the scriptures, informed and guided by what we find in the catechism. And one of the proof texts for this second catechism question and answer is 1 John 1, verses 3 and 4. But we'll read the whole chapter, and then we'll focus on the first four verses this evening. So 1 John 1, beginning in verse 4, let's remember that this is the very word of God. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And thus ends the reading of God's perfect, holy and inspired word. So as we walk through the catechism and consider what it teaches us about the word of God... Uh, it's maybe helpful to think about what we're doing in this way, that we're considering the basics of the Christian faith. This is a summary of true theology, of what we believe the scriptures teach, and it brings to us the basics of the Christian faith, and thus a way to look at the world that's uniquely biblical and Christian in structure. In other words, maybe a worldview. And so we're considering the most basic things that we know to be true because God has revealed these things in his word. And these first couple weeks, uh, we're considering kind of foundational truths. So last week, as we considered the first question and answer, we were, uh, we were dealing with the purpose for which God made us, to glorify and enjoy him forever. That's at the very basis of who we are as Children of God. And this week we consider how we can know what it means to glorify and enjoy God, a rule for the Christian life. The question and answer we're considering tonight is therefore of fundamental importance. For all of us, if we believe the whole argument and premise of the Shorter Catechism, that our primary purpose is to glorify God and that the only rule to direct us how to do that is the Scriptures, then what we're considering tonight is at the very foundation of what it means to live the Christian life. So let's review the question and answer that's before us. The question is this, what rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The answer is that the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. As we prepare to dig into 1 John chapter 1, I do want uh, to talk about two words that we find in that answer that we need to understand well. We need to understand both what is not intended, but also what is intended by these words. And the first word is simply this, the rule. It's the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. When you hear that word rule, does your neck stiffen a little bit? Aren't we prone to resist authority and to see rules as something that Stifles us that that frustrates us. We hear that word and sometimes we think it has a negative connotation. It describes for us a restricted life. It describes for us a narrow path, a narrow way. And of course, that's true. Jesus told us it was so. He said, "The way is narrow that leads to life. The way is wide that leads to destruction. But the way that leads to life." Is narrow, And it's also true that we should expect this in some sense, because if we know who God is and who we are, we should expect that he can establish rules that restrict us in how we live. He's the one true God. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He's the one who designed us for his glory, and therefore he sets the terms for what it means to glorify and enjoy him. And if that's all that it means by rule, then we might consider it negative and even restricted. But God's rules are for your good. In fact, we know this about rules in general, that life without rules seems appealing for a time, yet the result is deeply frustrating. When the world and those who live in it cast off all rules and all authority, what is left? Chaos, violence, destruction. We see some of that in the world in which we live, and we should expect that because we live in a fallen world. But rules help us to know how to live in a way that's joyful. Let me give just a couple of illustrations. Simple illustrations that break this down in a very small way. When I was about 12 years old, my parents were involved in International Friends. Some of you know that organization that participated in it. We would sponsor families, one from Japan, later a family from uh, China, and often they would be at our house for Thanksgiving. And one year, my brother and I, at 12 years old, were given the task as hospitable hosts to care for a young boy and so we played battleship with him and it was the longest game of battleship that I've ever played because I kept dropping bombs and they kept missing him and eventually I turned to my brother and said there's no room left on the board for any of his ships and my brother started to watch him and as I would drop things then he would move his ship to the place where I'd already dropped something that was frustrating I'm sure as a 12-year-old boy who was trained in the church that I dealt with it with grace and mercy. But rules are for our good and for our joy. Uh, Maybe you uh, saw or heard about the ending of the Super Bowl last week, and uh, that game reached overtime. Rules had been changed for overtime in the playoffs, and one of the teams had multiple players who did not understand the rules. And it was deeply frustrating. And as they tried to understand the rules in the midst of the game, it cost them in some significant ways. (laughs) Rules are important in everything that we do. Therefore, are good. And if that's true of battleship and a sporting event, how much more is that true of life lived in obedience to God? Life lived in a world that God created and designed for his glory and for our good. Who made the rules for the world that he created. How much more is it necessary for us to know the rules about how we should live. And to receive wisdom from above. To follow those rules as God has established them. We have that in the Bible. When we read Shorter Catechism, question and answer two, and hear that word rule. Here's what we should be thinking God, in His grace and mercy, out of love and concern for your well being, lays out the rules for Christian living, which are, as they're described elsewhere in the scriptures, a light to our path. And those rules allow us to glorify Him and to enjoy Him fully. Forever. So when you talk about rules and you hear the catechism talk about rules here, God's kindness, his grace, his mercy and his love. But there's another word we need to understand. It says that the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, this is the one that we need to understand, first of all, what it's not saying. There's two false theologies that are prevalent in our world and even in places that call themselves the church that understand that word contained in ways that do violence to the scriptures. The liberal says something like this, that within the many books, chapters, and pages of the scripture, you can find the word of God in parts of it. The Bible as a whole is not the word of God. The Bible in its entirety is not the word of God. But the Bible contains within it the word of God. And then it becomes a game to decipher, to decode, and to determine which of the words of Scripture are actually words from God. Now, I hope that when you hear someone speak in that way, that you respond something like this. What? What? How does that make sense? Nobody reads the Great Gatsby and says, well, that whole book is called the Great Gatsby, but I'm looking for the parts that are really and truly the Great Gatsby. You don't do that with great expectations or the Count of Monte Cristo, because if you do that, you start to cut up the story and you're left with no story at all. And so we can't understand it in that way. Now, there were other... People, followers of God and theologians who said well of course that doesn't make sense and so they created a new liberalism a neo-liberalism that says something like this the Bible becomes the word of God as you read it and the Holy Spirit applies it and it becomes the word of God in different ways to each person as the Holy Spirit works in and through the scriptures And so it's only the word of God as it becomes so, as you experience it, as you read it. Now that maybe sounds appealing for a moment. Until you realize that you never know what the word of God truly is. So what is meant when it says that the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? I just encourage you look at 2 Timothy 3:16. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable to train us up in righteousness and build us up in maturity in Christ. Every book, every chapter, every page, every verse, every word, every letter of the scriptures is the very word of God and hear this friends, it's the word of God to you in its entirety so that it is profitable for you. It does build you up more and more into the image of Jesus as the Holy Spirit applies it and as you grow in understanding. That's what we read, by the way, in our Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 2. It lays out the 66 books and says, All of them are the word of God. Now with that as our understanding that God in his graciousness has given us a rule and that the rule that he's given us to direct us how to glorify and enjoy him is the whole of the scriptures, every book and every word. Let's then look at the encouragement that we have from the first letter of John. What we see in the first letter of John is the word of the gospel, the word of life, the message of the scriptures being held forth to us as that thing that would build us up in assurance of faith. That's really kind of a summary of the whole of the the letter. John begins in a different way than most letters in the New Testament. There's no greeting and none of that uh, salutation that you find in the other letters. He simply gets right to the point because he's writing an urgent message. The church to which he writes is under attack. People in the church have crept in and taught another gospel. In other words, a broken gospel with a divided Savior that suggests that God God and Jesus cannot be fully God and fully man. He must be a divided Savior. And that broken gospel leads to a broken fellowship that destroys and rips apart the church. And because of their divided fellowship, it leaves people broken in faith. They have no assurance and no confidence because they're not sure what the gospel is anymore. And it's into that difficulty that John speaks and he holds before us the truth of the gospel that is the source of Christian fellowship that provides assurance that for all those who believe and trust in Jesus, they belong to him forever. That's the encouragement that we find in these words. And he gives us that encouragement in in four parts that we'll look at this evening. First of all, the testimony of Jesus. Secondly, the proclamation of Jesus. Third, fellowship in Jesus. And fourth, joy in Jesus. So it's interesting, as you read this, the way that the letter begins, it doesn't even sound like a sentence, does it? What was, what was, what was, what we have heard, what we have seen. It's only when you get to verse 3 that you get to the, the primary statement of that opening sentence of the letter. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. And what John proclaims to them and what he proclaims to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is simply this, the word of life. Look again at verse 1. It says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, maybe you read that and you hear something of what John began his gospel with. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And we're going to have to interact with that some this evening. And so as you hear the word of life, maybe you're thinking that the word is Jesus And that might be understandable, but it seems as if the word is actually the message, the content of the gospel, which reveals to you Jesus, who is life. Because notice what happens in verse 2. It says, and the life was manifested. Jesus, we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, who is Jesus John's reminding us that the message of the gospel, the content of the scriptures, is not merely a philosophy, but it speaks to us of a person. The second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is, for the people of God, a present, living, real Savior. That's where John's pointing us in this letter, to Jesus, the source of the giver of life. And I think that's where the catechism question and answer chapter uh, number two is leading us as well. See, sometimes you'll hear critiques of the Westminster standards that they start in the wrong place. That they start with a book when they should start with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so they compare it to that beautiful question and answer in the Heidelberg Catechism, the opening question. What's my hope in life and death? And the answer that many of us know quite well, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And it goes on to say what Christ has done for us. Unless I fall into this strange idiosyncratic battle that my confession is better than your confession and my catechism is better than your catechism, which only reformed people seem to do. Let's just say that's a great question and answer that brings great encouragement to the people of God. But I actually think that's where the catechism starts as well. (laughs) Because how do we know Jesus? We only know him as he's revealed himself to us in the word. The Westminster Standards start here with... The word of God, the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him, because it's only in and through the word that you can know Jesus. So that John says we proclaim the word of life because this word, this gospel, this message brings you to the crucified and risen Jesus. This book of life tells you about the Savior in whom there is eternal life. And that's what John then lays out for us in these first two verses. He says that it was from the beginning. That's where you begin to hear echoes of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the same was in the beginning with God. This is the eternal Son of God of whom John writes who was there in the beginning, who has no beginning and no end, who's with the Father in perfect fellowship and union as a second person of the Trinity and has been forever. But it seems as if John's also speaking of another beginning. The beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry and therefore the beginning of the apostolic ministry. Those who would come to walk with Jesus and see him and hear him. He's revealed himself at that point as well in a unique and special way. And John then opens that up for us. He reminds us that Jesus appeared in such a way that he appealed to all the senses of his disciples, the apostles, who walked with him and talked with him. In other words, the eternal son of God became man. He was a real, living, present savior. He made himself known to the apostles By appealing to them through all of their senses. That's what he goes on to say. What we have heard. You might read that and say, well, they heard about Jesus as he was spoken of in the Old Testament writings. But John's saying more than that. We actually heard him. We heard his voice. It says in verse 5 of the same chapter, this is the message we have heard from him. He spoke to us. He explained to us how all of the scriptures pointed us to the eternal son of God, who by his death and resurrection would bring life to the world. We heard him speak. So what we have heard, what we have seen, and then he adds to make it really clear with our eyes. We looked upon His face. John could say, I watched him die. It was one of only two that was there as he hung on the cross and breathed his last breath. We saw him several times with his glorified and resurrected body. We've seen him with our eyes. There's something else, I think, going on here as well. This particular word, we've seen him, appears three times in these first three verses. It's a special word that John singles out to describe what it is to have seen the face of Jesus. And it's interesting, it's the same word that John uses In John chapter 20, when he and Peter come to the empty tomb, he actually uses in that passage, chapter 20, verses 1 through 9, three different words for see. John shows up in the tomb and he sees the empty tomb. Peter shows up and he looks upon the the grave clothes. And then John says in chapter 20, verse 9, that he saw that Jesus was not there and believed. And that word saw in chapter 20, verse 9, is the same word that he uses here. I've seen him. We've seen him with our eyes. It left an impression upon him that caused him to know and to believe that this is the eternal son of God who died and was raised to save sinners like John. So we've heard him. We've seen him with our eyes. And then he goes on to say we looked at him. It means he perceived. He didn't just see him, but he perceived and understood who he was and touched him with our own hands. We touched his wounds, his pierced side. You can certainly think of Thomas and his desire to, to see and to touch his Savior. But Jesus actually told them to do that as well. In Luke chapter 24, when they weren't understanding who he was, he said, come and touch me with your hands and know who I am. So they've seen him, they've heard him, they've looked at him, they've touched him, the one who is the word of life. But he also appealed not just to their senses, but he appealed to their souls. And I think that's something of what we're getting in verse 2. Notice that now Jesus is called the life. Verse 2, and the life was manifested. He manifested appeared we might say the one who was from the beginning who was with the father from all eternity the one who was with God and who was God the one in whom all things came into being the one in whom was life the eternal son of God who is the same in substance and equal in power and glory with God the father became man and he appeared to men and women in the flesh But he didn't just appear to generic men and women. John makes it clear as well that the one who is the eternal life, who was with the Father, was manifested to us. John and James and Peter, as we'll see a little bit later in 2 Peter 1, were on the Mount of Transfiguration as they saw Jesus and heard the voice of the Father and saw him in some kind of transfigured, glorious state. And as we'll see, because he was one who had seen Jesus and who had seen him in human flesh, it prepared him to write scripture for us to read and to hear the voice of Jesus. You see, John wants us to understand that as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the message, the gospel, the word of life that he speaks is the word of Jesus. Because Jesus first appeared to John and to others. He visited with them. He spoke with them. He lived among them to testify about himself, who he is and what he came to do. And that this is of first importance for the people of God, because to know Christ is to know God, and in knowing him, you have eternal life, because Jesus is eternal life. Isn't that what we read in John 17? And so we see, first of all, the testimony of Jesus as he came in human flesh and revealed who he was and what he came to do. But secondly, we see in 1 John, these first few verses, the proclamation of Jesus. Jesus appeared, he was manifested, he revealed himself. And then there's this interesting thing that happens in verses 1 and 3. It it uses the word we... And you he revealed himself to us, in other words, verse three, and then we proclaimed him to you. John and the other apostles were given a task of gospel proclamation because they were ones who had seen Jesus, and they proclaimed Jesus in three ways as is laid out to us in these verses. first of all we 're told in verse two, the life was manifested, and we have seen." And testify. And what he's reminding us is that he and the apostles are in the unique role of eyewitnesses. That cascade of sensory descriptions in verse 1 is a reminder that John and others were eyewitnesses of Jesus. It's court language. They testify, they give eyewitness testimony concerning the person and work of Jesus. In fact, Jesus told them that that was their task. Luke 24, verses 45 through 48, as he reminds them that all of the scriptures were pointing forward to his death and resurrection, he says, and now you are my witnesses. Again, in Acts 1, verse 8, he tells them that when they receive power from the Holy Spirit, that you are my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Second Peter one verse sixteen. John in particular, or Peter in particular, speaking of Peter, James, and John, says we are we were eyewitnesses of his Majesty as he remembers the Mount of Transfiguration, and so they can testify as those who've seen and who know, and understand, friends, that that was a costly responsibility that they carried out. That word to testify comes into our language as martyr. All those who were eyewitnesses gave up comfort for the sake of the gospel if they followed Jesus. Most of them gave up their safety and many of them gave their lives to testify to the truth of the gospel. And we are better for their testimony. So they were called to testify. They were also called to proclaim. He says this twice in verse 2. He says, we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. Verse 3 says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. Now, we might think that just sounds like another way of saying they testify. But understand that proclaim has with it this idea of being on a mission. They received a commission from God above. They heard from God, it says in verse 5, and now they announce to you. They're heralds of the king. They're sent with the message of the gospel under the authority of the crucified and risen Christ. They're the ones in a special way who are spoken of the the Old Testament as those who are beautiful. Their feet are beautiful because they carry a message of good news. And in this sense, the apostles exercise a unique calling as eyewitnesses and heralds of Jesus Christ, who proclaim the good news so that the gospel could spread to every corner of the earth. And yet there's a small way in which we share in that same privilege. We are called to testify. We, as those who've experienced the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who know forgiveness of sins and life everlasting in him, can tell others this is who Jesus is, and here is what he has done for me. And then we can proclaim as ambassadors as we give a reason for the hope that is within us. So John testified and proclaimed we are called to follow in his footsteps in some way to testify and to proclaim of the goodness of Jesus. But there's one more way that they proclaim, and that's what's described in verse 4. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Now, maybe I don't have to say much here. Maybe you understand that what he's saying is they wrote Scripture as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's what's underneath this, friends. They were the ones who were called as eyewitnesses of the crucified and risen Savior to record in the Scriptures the very word of God for the salvation of the souls of millions upon millions who followed after so that Paul in Ephesians 2 verse 20 says that the church is built on the foundation of not just the prophets, but the apostles and the prophets. So that Peter in Second Peter 3 verses 15 through 16 can talk about Paul's writings and compare them, even equate them with the Old Testament scriptures and say this is the word of God. So that Peter can also say earlier in that same letter in chapter 1, beginning in verse 19 and following, that, that those who wrote Scripture were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That Paul can say in 2 Timothy three sixteen that the very words that they were write were breathed out by God. And friends, that's a role we'll never share with the apostles. But we can rejoice that God, for a time, in his mercy, raised up those who were so filled with the Holy Spirit that they could go on and write the very words of God so that we could read and know that this is God's word to us. And listen to how Peter describes that that scriptural testimony in 2 Peter chapter 1. He describes, beginning in verse 16, that time when they were eyewitnesses of the majesty, Peter, James, and John, seeing the majesty and glory of God on that mount of transfiguration. They were... Uh, receiving of honor and glory from God from simply being there and hearing the voice of God. But then notice what it says in verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. In other words, we have the better word. Haven't you ever thought to yourself, wouldn't it be great to have been one of the apostles and to hear the voice of God and to look upon his face and to touch him And Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says you have something better. The more sure prophetic word contained in the 66 books of the Bible. So we have the testimony of Jesus through his life and death and resurrection. We have the proclamation of Jesus as the apostles Testify and proclaim and write. But then we see the purpose for this revealed message of the gospel, and it's in two parts. First of all, it says in verse three, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. Remember, fellowship strikes at the heart of the problem that John addresses. False teaching, aberrant teaching, anti-Christian heretical teaching that breaks fellowship and divides the church. And he gives this great promise in verse 3 that the message of the gospel, the word of life, produces a fellowship with his church that is unbroken. But there's also something greater in verse three. Notice what it goes on to say. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. Most fundamentally, the fellowship that we have as we hear the message of the gospel and the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to believe and to respond in faith is that we have fellowship with God and with his son. When John speaks about fellowship in this letter, he's expressing the glories of salvation in its widest scope. Reconciled to God in Christ at the end of verse 3. What we read about in Galatians 2.20 when it says, I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The fellowship that Paul writes about in Ephesians 2 when he says, that wall of separation has been torn down, and those who were without God and with hope without hope in the world now are reconciled to God by the blood of the cross of Jesus. So we have fellowship with God in Jesus. We have a reconciliation that produces in us holiness, of life. It's what he goes on to talk about in verse 6 that we can't have fellowship with darkness, but that in Christ we have fellowship with the light, who is Jesus. And because we have fellowship with God and with Christ, we have fellowship with one another. Our fellowship with one another in the church of Jesus Christ depends on our blood bought fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The very message that John saw and believed and testified to and proclaimed and wrote, which he in all the scriptures calls us to believe, has to do with Jesus and the forgiveness of sins and fellowship with God that we have in him. And therefore the rule that directs us how to glorify and enjoy God is gracious. Because the rule has everything to do with the work of Jesus to save sinners like you and like me. So it talks about fellowship, but it talks as well about joy. This is the primary reason, undoubtedly, that this particular passage is included as uh, evidence of the truth that's explained in question and answer two. Remember, that answer says that We have this rule contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, which is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. For those of you who were here last week, I'm not sure what most stuck with you, but what stuck with me was something that Pastor Shishka said that was something like this, that God wants our joy and that he works through Jesus in such a way to give us joy joy and that at the heart of his desire for us is that we would find joy in him and think about all the things that we just heard that were proclaimed and written by the apostles that christ's death is our death that i've been crucified with him and the life that i live i live in him and how can we respond except to respond in joy that Jesus came in human flesh, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but became nothing, and suffered even to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that you and I, by faith in him, might have life. So that when we read in the Psalms, for instance, the end of Psalm 16, maybe you should turn there, Psalm 16. Right in the middle of that psalm, David says, The Lord is my portion, the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. My heritage is beautiful to me. But he goes on to sing praises to God and to set the Lord, as he says, continually before me. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now, there's a reason for joy. And David's response then is, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Brothers and sisters, the rule that God has given us in his word is of such majesty and glory because it reveals to us the majesty and glory of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, our Savior and our Lord. And his desire for us is that as we read the scriptures and as he teaches us the scriptures and guides us by the scriptures with the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts and in our minds, that we would know how to glorify him. And as amazing as it is that the eternal God wants us to know fullness of joy in Jesus forever. So let's rejoice that God speaks to us by his word and in so doing teaches us how to glorify and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we rejoice in the gift of your word. We ask that even Today, as we've considered your word throughout this day, that you would so strengthen us in faith and obedience that we would know how to glorify and enjoy you and that we would enjoy you forever and ever because we are in Jesus. We pray in his name, amen.